0: Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.
2: You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now.
0: All right, folks. Well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have a very, very special guest with us. uh, One of my favorite uh, writer, thinkers, investors, his name is Vitaly Kansenelsen. And he is the CEO of the IMA firm based out of Colorado, and he has a fantastic blog. It is one of my favorites that really, really has helped me learn and grow so incredible much. It's called The Contrarian Edge. If you do not already subscribe to it, you need to. It's fantastic. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started. You don't want to hear me talk. We want to hear Vitaly talk. So Andrew, why don't you go ahead and ask the first question and we can go ahead and chat a little bit. Yeah, thanks for Tally for uh for joining us.
3: And um you know, I, I'm also a, a big fan. Um currently it was actually good timing because um I'm in the middle of reading your Sideways Markets book. Uh so, so I happened to be reading that when I reached out to see if you want to do an interview. And you know, we're obviously a show that's very focused on beginners and we, we like to talk about value investing and trying to buy stocks, buying low, selling high. So when you think you know how do you think about value investing because that's one of the things that you like to talk about you're a value investor, you like to think about investing, so do you approach the actual topic of value investing differently? Do you see it as like a numbers game? Do you see it as maybe a mixture of both how How would you go about uh, approaching the the idea on the topic of value investing?
1: Well, first of all, David and Andrew, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Um, all right. So uh, I think value investing is uh, usually misunderstood. And let me explain you why. So the Ben Graham wrote the Bible of value investing, you know, the, the intelligent investor. And uh, when people, most people read this book, they get, uh, what they get out of this, they get this recipe. And the recipe is basically this, buy cheap stocks. And... Uh, and I think they get the wrong message out of this, though the recipe is part of the book. The bigger message of the book is really, it's a it's a value investing philosophy, something I go through in my Six Commandments. Uh, but basically, it's value investing is a philosophy where you say, um, and let me just go through a few of those Six Commandments, stocks are not pieces of paper, they're businesses. So you would analyze a business, you will analyze a stock the same way you would analyze a business. Risk is not really the volatility of the stock market, but a permanent loss of capital when the stock price declines and never comes back. The uh you the mystery market is there to serve you, not the other way around. So this is the just three commandments out of six. And I implore your uh readers actually and listeners, I'm sorry, go to the intelligent investor, I'm sorry, investor.fm. And actually where they can listen to the all six commandments, you know, which is the basic excerpt from a chapter of the book I'm working on. But anyway, so the, so, but that's the point number one about investing. So that's the, it's, you know, investing, value investing is a philosophy and not just a recipe of buying kind of stocks that trade at 10 times earnings or less. Because other, if that's, if that's all it was, then you can just have a computer do value investing. And in, in, it's not even a good computer because all you have to do is count to 10, right? If the fee less than 10 and buy it, you know, so you don't, you, ha, you don't have to be that smart. And, um, also the, um, another part to value investing is that the, it's a kind of the Ben Graham's recipe, kind of, you know, just you know, buy statistically cheap stocks is very one dimensional because it only focuses on kind of on, um, on price but you also have two other dimensions which is basically quality and growth right quality is a very important dimension because if you have a high quality company that basically that has a you know strong competitive advantage that basically guarantees you that the cash flows in the future will be there which is that's that's very important and growth there's a lot of volume growth because Google is a lot more valuable today than it was 10 years ago because its earnings up, I don't know, 5x or 10x since then. So there is a lot of value has been created by Google you know, growing, as an example. So if you just focus, again, if you focus just on statistical price and ignore the quality and growth, you are really missing out on a lot.
3: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess when investors try to look at how a stock, price kind of moves and and how they're trying to pick these sort of investments what are some you know do you see any some uh really key kind of uh big things that they can do you know obviously um you're a fund manager you you spend all day uh looking at stocks analyzing stocks as as a as an investor as somebody who is following ben graham also trying to kind of put your own twist on it and understanding that's it's more than just numbers. We're also looking for growth. We're looking for these businesses that can compound capital because that's the ideal. We want businesses that will compound capital for us. And, and so we don't have to do as much work. Um, are there like big picture ideas of, of what we can do to kind of put all the odds in our favor um, and, and give us uh, the best chances for higher investor returns?
1: Well, I think you have to work very diligently on trying to be rational. Okay, and what I mean by this, stock market does an incredible job to turning any inspiring investor into a trader, because what happens, you know, the stock prices, is, you know, stocks you own are quoted every millisecond, and stock, you know, and so if you look at your stock portfolio, it changes the value you know second by second, so what we try to do and what i think most investors should you know should, should try to do is divorce themselves from the stock market and basically look you know f- first of all figure out uh what is their what are their core competency uh, wh- uh what what is their core competency so now what stocks they you know what businesses they understand well uh and, um also where's the uh, not, not just IQ, which would be core competency, but also the EQ is the highest. Which, you know, so in other words, if you own a business um, and you feel that uh, over time you're, you become very emotional uh, when something happens to the business, you probably should not own that business because you will, not, you will not be able to be rational in the long run. So when I look at a company, I ask myself first two questions. Do I understand the business? Does that business lie in my EQ? You know, where my EQ is the highest. If the answer is no to either one of them, I move on. Um, so, so, so it's, to answer your question, first you identify, you know, you start looking at the start looking for businesses you understand well, where you're the most rational, value them, and then just basically look for the market to come to you. So, figure out if you want to pay $60 for that business and the price is 80, just do nothing. And wait, you know, to the price gets to sixty dollars below, and then you start buying. So that's kind of the answer to your question. Uh, I'm not sure what that's exactly what you're looking for.
3: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think if if uh, investors can find, like you you mentioned this EQ thing, if they have, you know, it's not just picking the right stock because you could pick the right stock, and if if the price goes down and and you sell out before there's a nice swing back up and a recovery you're obviously not going to receive those returns. So, you know, there's, there's like the one side where you need to pick the right stocks. And on the other side, you need to make sure that you have the fortitude to be able to weather any sort of storm and kind of let the business grow and, and compound regardless of of where the stock market goes and what it does. And so I like how you you said, you know, make sure you divorce the stock market because that, that, that's like, I, I think for value investing to work, that that needs to be at the first and foremost thing. And, and if you're not if you're not getting that equation, you know, then then you're you're not getting the whole thing.
1: Let me summarize why EQ is important. And I'm going to quote uh, Mike Tyson: Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Okay, <laughs> so everybody has a great you know has a plan when they buy a stock, and then things happen, which happens all the time. This is where your EQ becomes very very important.
3: I guess on the topic of when things go wrong um yes. lately we we've had a a market that's been difficult for value investors i think uh there's there's a lot of articles that have been coming out where people are saying value investing is dead and, you know we have i I particularly see a lot of a lot of things that um kind of say the the price to book value is dead and here's the reasons why so you have uh, an environment where it's been difficult for particularly value investors who buy on low P- price to sales, price to book, and maybe even price to earnings. Do you do you think, I guess uh, there's a lot of ways we could go with this, but um, do you think that the price to book is is like a completely out of date metric where we shouldn't even look at it anymore? And then secondly, do you think, do you see this sort of cycle of value investing where it's been underperforming uh, to the point where is it just one of those things where growth is just underperforming and, and it's just a natural cycle or is this indicative of, of something that's maybe longer term? Because mm. it seems like to me it's it's been quite a while, like 10 years of depending on i guess who you're talking to but maybe 10 years of underperforming growth seems quite excessive mm. and and like maybe that's something that's not a cycle and maybe is indicative of something something that's developed in the market that that you know we we need to think about
1: Andrew i really like how you broke up this question into two questions because they're two very different questions okay one is basically looking at value investing as a kind of a in a Ben Graham kind of way saying, okay, is that the price to book is dead or price to is dead, et cetera. And then kind of talking about value investing from a, the kind of Ben Graham as a uh, kind of uh, value investing as a philosophy. Yeah. So let's, let's, so let's look at it this way. Okay. So I never looked at value investing again as a kind of a, you know, like price to book to me was always, was only applicable when you look at certain type of stocks. Like when you look at banks, price to book actually is a meaningful number, because the book is a is number is actually you know banks have to mark the assets uh, uh, mark the assets to uh, value once a quarter, or so you when you so when you look at the book value actually you know it's a meaningful number. I'm not sure like if you look at Microsoft, price to book is meaningless because you know the, Microsoft's assets are not on the balance sheet in a traditional form They're, you know, they don't show up on the balance sheet. It's a, it's a, uh, and if you look at Coke, same thing, you know, if you, if you look at, uh, Facebook, it's the same thing. So the, the, when you, when you were a, when you had a manufacturing economy measures like price to book made a lot more or, uh, made a lot more sense in today's economy is just the nature. If you get, you know, the, you know, they the, the count counting, uh, the counting, um, metric as a, a book value just is becomes less, less relevant. If you can guesstimate what the value of the company is, then, uh, and you call it book, then price to book actually matters. Uh, so anyway, so the, m- so my point is the kind of traditional measures, you know, the price to book to me, you know, was always only applicable to when it comes to financial companies, maybe insurance companies, but that's about it. Um, I, s- so when it comes to value investing in general, if you think about the environment we've been in over the last 10 years, interest rates basically declined from, I don't know, 5 or 6% or 7% to almost zero. In some countries, they're actually negative. And when that happens, if, you, if, you, if, if I implore you to look at stocks as you would look at bonds for a second, if you own a 30-year bond, and let's say five-year bond, what would happen to the price of those bonds when interest rates decline? Well, the price of the thirty-year bond would go up a lot, and the price of the five-year bond would go up a lot less. Okay, so I would. Val- Sorry, I would,
3: uh, can you can you uh, explain just really quick why, as far as because we have some? Sure, you know, no, abso- abso- yeah. absolutely. So the,
1: the there's a there's a method. Like, you know, it's a method, It's first of all, it's a mathematical relationship. But think about this: the most of the value of the 30 year bond, like a big portion of the value of 30 year bond lies in the interest payments that people, you know, the that the holder of the bond would receive over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. If you discount, so the when interest rates decline, you start discounting those future payments at a lower rate and therefore they become more valuable today. And therefore the the you know the value of, you know, the price of the bond would go up. Does does that make sense?
3: Yeah so yes. so if if interest rates are higher then um, you could, if you had the money, you could have reinvested it and bought a bond that would get you higher interest. And yes. on the flip side, it's the other way. So then yes. that's why, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, but no, but that's true for both five-year bond and 3 year bond. The point is this, if I get, let's, let's, let's just uh, make it even simpler than that. Let's say I'm going to give you um, $100 30 years from now or I give you $100 five years from now. Yes. If uh, a small, it just uh, if interest rates go from seven percent to five percent, the impact on that that hundred dollars that you, you know I'm going to give you three years from now is going to be much greater, right? Because th- that, that impact is magnified by time. Okay. So and that, and that's, and th- that is the key. So the longer, so the you know the longer duration of the bond. You know, the, you know, the longer the maturity, the greater impact change in interest rates has on the price. That's that's almost like the that's the axiom of you can say bond investing, but actually almost valuing any asset. Okay, so the reason the reason it's important that because the same applies to stocks. If you and I hate to use this kind of uh, these divisions, but we have to, and I guess in this case, so when you have growth stocks versus value stocks. Growth stocks means basically companies that earnings are growing at a very fast pace and they usually trade at higher price to earnings because a larger portion of their earnings lies in the future, just like a great portion of the uh, cash flows for a long-term bond lies in the future as well. So therefore, when interest rates decline, the value of growth companies goes up a lot more than the value of uh, value companies who are traded lower price earnings and happen to have uh, lower growth rates, yep. so therefore, in the last ten years when interest rates declined from normal rates to in you know, to abnormal rates, the value investing has not done as well as as, as kind of growth investing at some point when rates decline. I mean, I'm sorry, when rates stop declining and start start going up, uh uh that's gonna revert. I mean, I think you know, that would be one of the reasons for the uh for the reversion to happen, I guess. Uh yeah, actually
3: that makes a lot of sense. Uh how do you see like does it feel like we're kind of delayed as far as okay, so I asked this because all right, I'm um in the middle of your sideways market book, like mm-hmm. I said. Mm-hmm. Um you you had predicted in the book where um, we had just come from uh, like an 18 year bull, and then mm-hmm. uh, when you wrote the book, it, it, it seemed like we were in a sideways market. And then mm-hmm. since, I guess, since 2015, you know, the market's kind of gone straight up, and um, we, you know, we're we're still not at the next 18 year mark uh, since the last bull. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. Uh, in previous, so I, I'll let you introduce what I'm talking about, so <laughs> people might like be confused of of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, maybe in previous bull markets that have been followed by sideways markets, we've had interest rates that I guess went down and then up and and kind of looked more normal. Whereas mm-hmm. recently, we've had these very. It seems like a very extended, long period of interest rates being artificially low, and it's it's never. It seemed to me like it never interest rates never climbed back where they should have for like a real recovery. Mm-hmm. So, do you think so, that has an effect on what we're talking about and on this sideways market that hasn't
1: happened yet? I guess. Let me try to summarize the eighty pages of my book in three minutes or less, and so, <laughs> so, so I can ask, so, so I can answer your question. Um, so, just. Think about just Let me simplify it this way. If you own stocks, in the long run, the, you get compensated by price going up and dividends. Or, you know, you know, hopefully going up. You know, but basically changing prices and dividends. Okay, we're going to put dividends aside for a second. And look at this stock price. Why does price go up? Really mathematically for two reasons. Because earnings are growing or declining or price turning is going up or down. So let's assume that earnings Will be growing like you know, if if you look over the last hundred plus years, earnings have grown about five or six percent a year. Not every year, but on average, they've grown five or six percent a year. So let's keep that as a constant. So let's you know let's you know ignore that for a second. But then if you look at price to earnings, price to earnings basically is the pendulum that creates a lot of noise. In the you know and, but and that's what causes market cycles, from sixty six to eighty two price to earnings, uh, when, when we had the last sideways markets, price to earnings went from high to average to below average. And that's why the stock market has gone nowhere, even though earnings have grown, at, I don't know, 5 or 6 or 7% a year during that time. So um, the reason it's important is this. So the if you basically make an assumption, and that's an assumption in itself, that earnings will continue to grow, then what's really going to determine what the stocks are going to do in over a extended period of time, let's say 10, 15, 20 years is really price earnings. And when the price earnings is high, you know, at the end of the bull market, usually it's like a pendulum. Uh, it's really swings from one extreme to another. And that, and so, and uh, so when I wrote the book, price turnings was very high and I forget the numbers now, but let's say in a, uh, in 1999, I think the price earnings of the was, uh, I forget to say 30 times earnings or something. So historically, when it, if it's one from 30 times earnings to eight or 10, that, that's, that decline would basically cause any growth from earnings to be wiped out. And that's, so that's, and when, when that happens, you have sideways markets. So when I was writing the book, I was basically saying their, you know, valuations are high, which they were and, uh, The price turnings likely what it's going to do, what it did in the past is going to go from high to average to below average. Except what I was wrong about is that the interest rates went from normal level to negative interest rates in many countries. And that has kind of, I don't think it's changed the sideways markets dynamics. It's kind of paused them, you know, and, uh, so since then people were kind of forced into buying stocks because. If they in the if like you basically if you had a saver who used to own corporate bonds who has government bonds, and that's how they basic that that's was their income uh now they're forced into buying Cokes and kimberly Clark's and crafts Heinz because they're you know instead of you know they they they're looking at those stocks to get dividends i mean you know for uh, they're buying from dividends, and that kind of and that's changed the and that's kind of uh, interrupted my kind of sideways market thesis for a while. Uh but I would still write the same book. If I was if I was sitting today, like if if I assuming I did not know what interest in the industry you know, will go to zero and, and negative in many countries, I would still write the same book today. Uh and I think the overall the framework of the book is still accurate. Budgeting was
0: always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's monarchmone dot beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform, our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With our convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. HIMSS is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIM subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at HIMS.com slash investing. That's com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable, compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping?
4: Then maybe you should check out the Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of- Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing, or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy find sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams.
3: Yeah, 100% reversion yeah. to the yeah. mean and yeah. evaluations and price to earnings going up and down. That's Yeah. Like you said, that's how that's what drives stock prices. Uh do I guess do you think if but we're starting to see interest rates slowly climb. I guess if it got to a point where, I don't know if it, if it was more like normal interest rates, if we saw that uh, from here, maybe let's say the next two, three years, how do you think that would affect the value cycle that, that we've been seeing and just the market in general?
1: You know, I, I tried to sit down and write about this many, many times. And every single time I could not finish the article because I think I'm I'm really concerned about what would happen to our economy if we had higher interest rates. Because I feel that, um, like, if you look at the economy, I feel like the economy would, like, if you think about it, like over the last 10 years, the economy has grown. Like, I don't know, it's a semi-normal rate, not necessarily great rate, but semi-normal rate, while our debt has skyrocketed. And, uh, if something works one way, it must work the other way too. So in other words, if interest rates go higher today, corporations are a lot more indebted than before. Governments are a lot more indebted than before. Consumers are much better health, which is good. And our banking system is much better health. That's good. But if you bought a car, you know, and you, you know, you, you got 4% financing and suddenly you, Going to buy a car and they finance in six or seven percent, which is like would be normal, like in the 1990s that would be a normal number. Um, then suddenly that car becomes twenty or thirty percent more expensive, and you say, well, maybe I should not be buying forty-five thousand dollar car and should be buying thirty-five thousand dollar car, and that has a huge impact on profitability of car makers. And this is just a, as an example. Now think about this: you know what would higher interest rates do to prices of housing? You know, mm-hmm. how, you know, house prices, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also think about what high interest rates would do to U.S. government, whose debt has basically doubled over the last 10 years, but interest payments are still the same as a dollar amount, at the same level they were 10 years ago. So I am really concerned what would high interest rates would do to the health of the economy. And I, and I, so right now I just sound paranoid and but maybe maybe you should maybe maybe I should be paranoid about this you know um and uh over, over the last 10 years the more um the more um the more vigilant you were and the more kind of the more you knew about the economy you know c- how kind of c- how economy works the less money you made so uh, but anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it kind of like of last 10 years, ignorance was a bliss. You know, the less you knew, the, yeah. you know, the more money you made. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that's equation again, but this is kind of, this is what I think about high interest rates. It really worries me. Um, and, uh, you know, and also when, when, when I say this, people say, well, then, you know, then we can't afford, because we can't afford higher interest rates. Therefore, the Federal Reserve would not allow higher interest rates to happen. On which my answer is that assumed that you know, central banks can actually control interest rates in the long run. Like the, you know, central banks may have a, have a much greater control of uh, short term interest rates. But at the end of the day, the markets will set long term interest rates. They can try to fight, you know, the central banks will try to fight it. But at the end of the day, if you think, if you think inflation is going to be high, you are not going to be buying long term bonds. You know, it's just, you know, people would just make rational decisions and say, I, I don't want to buy bonds that pay me 3% if I think, inter- you know, inflation is going to be 6 yes. And therefore, you know, so I think at the end of the day, you know, the kind of uh, the greed or self-interest will actually, that's what will be set in the interest rates for, you know, long-term rates. Uh, so anyway, yeah. I guess on that cherry note, no, <laughs> uh, so I, yeah.
3: How would you position, or how are you positioning your your portfolio? Then, um, are you just sticking a head in the sand, or are you picking stocks differently? What are you doing?
1: We are we've been incredibly conservative and incredibly defensive, and we've been emphasizing emphasizing quality. And for us, quality basically, and I'm just being extremely. I'm generalizing means company has a gets a great business a great balance sheet and great management and great balance sheet becomes even more important in the context of the discussion you just, you and I just had. So, and, uh and, and another factor is if, you know, and, and also we are very concerned about valuations. So we are, uh, when we, when we analyze companies, we are not, we don't, uh, re, uh we are, value them on an absolute basis, not on a relative basis. And uh, let me explain to you to your listeners what it means. When you look at a company, I say what is a company worth? And let's say hypothetically, it's you know, it's you know it's worth to be you know, in the kind of semi-normal interested environment, it should be trading about 15 times earnings, just for its trade purposes. Okay. Um but then so that's you know, and so if you know if it's a, if it's a fair value is 15 times earnings, I want to buy it. I don't know. Let's say 10 times earnings. Okay, hypothetically. Okay, that's absolute valuation analysis. Okay, relative valuation analysis would be you don't look at what you, know, you basically say. Okay, where is the company's price earnings has been historically? And you say okay, well, or you look at the competitors and say, well, competitors, you know, used to trade at uh, 26 times earnings. Or maybe it's still trading 26 times earnings and this company is trading today at 18 to 20. So based to its past or its relative, you know, or relative standing to competitors, it's cheap. We don't do that because we, you know, the you know, valuation of last five years may not necessarily what's, you know, what, what the valuations we're going to see in the next five years. So we look at what the company's uh, valuation absolute basis. That's, uh, that's, that's another point. And third point, if I can't find enough companies that meet my quality criteria and create my, and, and, and basically, and meet my evaluation criteria, we are going to have cash. And uh, today, our accounts have a lot of cash. Our, uh, our new accounts today would be, yes, maybe only, tw- uh, tw- uh, 35, 40% invested. And so they would kind of have 60, 65% invested in, uh, you know, six months treasuries, you know. Uh, so that's how we position today, uh, our know, accounts.
3: Do you, do you think, um, the average investor should try to, cause you know, um, I I think Ben Graham with his book, the intelligent investor, he tried to, uh, make it simple for, for laymen like me and Dave, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, where, where we have just like a framework we can use and, and, um, it's very simplified and we don't know anything about economics and, and it's more just trying to, to buy companies and and let them compound capital and we and we try to hold it for the long term. Um, do you think the average investor should think about a cash position as well? Maybe take that circle of competence to find it. And then also if, if you can't find enough stocks to fit that criteria to have them hold cash or do you think they should be in indexing or should they do something completely different? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I'm very conflicted. On, uh, on this question, and let me let me give you where I'm coming from. So, on one side, I think individual investors have an advantage to some degree versus people like me, because, or not necessarily like me, but like against professionals, because a professional you know, professionals have to serve the clients, and a lot of times you have clients who are who may have a different time horizons than uh, you as investor should have. So, and a lot of times you, um, like I'll give an example. So in, uh, in 1999, if you were looking for the uh, interest of your clients, you probably would be extremely conservative and you would be buying, and you would own at the time value stocks, right? Stocks mm-hmm. that traded eight or 10 times earnings and happened to be high quality companies that were cheap and you would not own dot coms. Okay. But as a as a professional, you had a career risk because dot coms were going up and value stocks weren't. And so a lot of value investors, uh value investing firms went out of business because their clients took them you know took the money and invested, you know, and invested with into you know, uh high-flying dot coms. So you as a as a professional investor, you always have a career risk. And so the, the way we structured our firm that we have very little career risk because we only accept clients who basically share my philosophy. Okay. okay. So the, so, so now some degree, as an as a, as a individual investor, you're only answering to yourself, so you don't have that issue. So that's an advantage. At the same time, I find that a lot of people should not be managing their own money because for the same reason doctors should not be treating their own kids. When my son was born, which was 17 plus years ago, I discovered that pediatricians actually don't treat their kids, and I asked why, and the doctor explained that to be a good doctor, you basically have to be ex- extremely dispassionate, and rational, and um, very thorough. When you deal with somebody else's kids, you can be rational, um, and you can look at probabilities, you can look at all the different diseases a child could possibly have, etc. You, you you know you can you can be rational. When it comes to your own kids. Your emotions, your emotions can take over and therefore that will turn you from a good doctor to a bad doctor. This is why you have somebody else, you know, treat your kids. I find the same could be true, not for everybody, but for a lot of people because greed and fear get amplified when it comes to your own money. So to be a good investor, you have to be incredibly dispassionate to some degree and incredibly process driven. So, we try to look at what we do here as a kind of analytics factory um and so if you can do this so they, so this here's a caveat if you can do this with your money, if you can be dispassionate, and if you feel that greed and fear are not a big factors for you, then you should be managing your own money you know there's nothing wrong with you managing your own money if you find that's not the case, maybe you shouldn't what you do with that if you hire a professional or invest in index funds, you know that's you know that's up to you. But I think the, when, um, and let me go a step further. Uh, A lot of times I give speeches to students at universities and they ask me, what's the best way to learn about investing? And my answer is this, and I think I kind of stole it from Charlie Munger, maybe possibly. Um, I would say, take as much money as you can afford to lose and look at it as your tuition money. And just start analyzing companies as if you were going to present them to somebody else. Like do a full research, not just say, I like Intel because everybody likes Intel and buy it. Do a research, you know, like go through the whole from from like if you were working for a money management firm and you had to present why you buy buying Intel. So do this kind of analysis and just for a few stocks and buy them. And it's very important to actually... Not to use paper money, but to use actual money. And the reason for that, because, um, I think, uh, Charlie Munger, I'm going to quote on this. I'm going to quote Charlie Munger, uh, who said, learning about investing through many, you know, through, uh, paper portfolio is like learning about sex from, uh, romantic novels. So, uh, so, but, so the, the, but the, the thing is because investing is a lot more, it's a lot more than just analysis. It's a, it's a, it's a psychological game. And the only reason you can trigger that psychology is when you actually commit your own capital to a, you know, to a stock, when you actually own it and you experience the pain of stock price decline, et cetera. So I would really recommend, again, just take as much money as you can afford to lose and look at it as tuition as a as a, your tuition and buy a few companies and don't look at it as a diversified portfolio because at this point you're not trying to build a diversified portfolio you're just trying to build a skill of analysis uh, and then portfolio management is already is a kind of it's secondary to that
3: that's that's one of the best breakdowns I've heard on the topic. It's a very controversial topic for sure,
1: yeah, I agree. Well, thank you.
2: Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it.
3: Dave, (laughs) uh, I know you had some questions. I apologize. I've been hogging the mic here. Uh,
0: (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) It's quite all right. Before we run out of time here. Yeah, I got a couple things I want to throw at you, Vitaly. Um, So... Since you started investing, have your thoughts on investing uh, evolved? Have they kind of changed from when you first really started to embrace this idea and and to where you are today?
1: Yeah. So I think I kind of, when I started investing, I was a lot more kind of a one dimensional kind of Ben Ben Graham recipe investor to I became, and I I started to pay attention to a lot more qualitative factors, not just quantitative factors. So when you buy a company today, I spend a lot more time thinking about management. And uh, when we buy companies, we today we try to buy companies where management owns a lot of shares because if they own, like if we have companies where many you know, where a CEO owns twenty percent of the company, every time he makes an acquisition, for every dollar of money a company spends, twenty cents of it is his. So therefore, he, he cares a lot more about that acquisition working out than. I would because for me, it's a three or five or 7% position. For him, it's a 95% of his net worth. So, uh, over, over time, I evolved into being kind of more quantitative to become a lot more qualitative. So I, I appreciate the, um, kind of the little innuendos and the kind of the qualitative factors a lot more. And, um, also, so the investing kind of went from being a more of a science. To a lot more of an art form, and I kind of and I try to, and over the last couple of years, has been working on my new book, which may take me five or ten years to write, I have no <laughs> idea how long it's gonna take. Um, you know, then uh, i become in a lot more like it's taken me a lot more into the how do you become a lot more, even more multi dimensional than that. So, uh,
0: yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. A little bit like what Warren Buffett has gone through with the influence from Charlie Munger, I guess.
1: That's exactly right. No, that's exactly the analogy I would make. Yes. So the yeah. Charlie Munger, and I think I wrote about this at some point. Charlie Munger turned Warren Buffett from kind of uh, Ben Graham, uh, kind of res, you know, kind of cooking recipe, buy stocks at six times earnings or point eight times book value. To a multi-dimensional investor, absolutely, Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, so the, so the, let me let me take it a step further. So the uh, Ben Graham, and again, I don't want to diminish Ben Graham because the philosophy, the value investing philosophy that he introduced in the Intelligent Investor, is the foundation of everything we do. So this is, I'm not trying to diminish what his contribution. Quite the opposite. I'm just saying, if the only thing you get out of Intelligent Investor, that kind of one-dimensional recipe. You're shortchanging yourself. But, um, uh, but my, my point is this, Ben Graham would never buy Coke in the eighties because it did never look statistically cheap,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but Coke had an incredible brand. And at the time it's, you know, it still had a very high return capital, which it still has, but more importantly, it also had a huge growth runway. And therefore, if you look at Coke's earnings 10 years out, the stock actually was very cheap when he bought it. It just was not cheap on the earnings that Coke had next year this year or next year or last year. So that's, you know, that's the kind of the evolution of, a uh, of, uh, Warren Buffett. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's
0: a great analogy. Uh, so you mentioned your book. So let's talk a little bit about that. I, sure. I know we're, we're talking five, 10 years from, from <laughs> an actually being able to read it, but, uh, you, you shared with your, your readers, uh, Uh, kind of a snippet of the first chapter about the six commandments. And I know that's on your podcast. That's just been released as well. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about like the idea of where you came up with this idea of the six commandments of value investing?
1: Yeah. So the, it came actually, originally uh, I came out as a speech. I gave a speech at the guru focus conference and a conference organizer asked me to kind of talk about our approach. And the whole purpose about the speech was saying, okay, this is the six commandments. And like, like I was speaking to other value investors. So nothing there was supposed to be shocking about value, you know, it's like me trying to, you know, explain alphabet to English majors, you know, so I, so there was nothing shocking about the six commandments. Everybody in the room knew what they were, but I think my goal there was, okay, so we all know what they are, but how do you actually embed them into, how do we actually embed them in our investment process? And that was kind of the whole point. So it's a, not just here's the six commandments let me explain what they are, but more importantly, how do you integrate them to your investment process? So, and that spilled into, so the name of the book I'm working on is called the intellectual investor. And the intellectual investor is kind of like the next evolution of the Intelligent investor. So the name of the chapter that I shared on the, uh, you know, the, on the podcast and actually on my blog as well. You can, you can, I think you can download it there. Yeah, Um, you can. Yeah. um, Is, uh, it's called the six commandments of value investing. I could have called it also the intelligent investor because I just, I just took, uh, Ben Graham's philosophy and just put it in my own words and kind of used my own analogies. But again, it's case came from the intelligent investor book. So it's, um, so that's how I came up with the chapter. And so that's an introductory chapter to the book because and everything else builds on top of that. And that's kind of so the um the story to this book I'm working on is I to me it's fascinating because not the story itself, but what I'm trying to do. There is this I, I don't know where I read this, but there is this story of this mother who comes to Dalai Lama with son, and uh the mother says, Well, can you please you know to Dalai Lama? can you please talk to my son? He eats too much sugar. The Dalai Lama looks at the mother, looks at the son and says, you know what, why didn't you come back in a month? So in a, m- a month later, mother comes back. I was her son. Dalai Lama looks at the son and says, stop eating sugar. So the mother is bewildered. She's like, I was here a month ago. You could have said the same thing. The Dalai Lama says, you're absolutely right. But first I had to stop eating sugar myself. So the the key is, so what I'm trying to do in this book, I am trying to become the intellectual investor. So this is really, I'm just writing really for myself. This is why there is no publishing deadline, because I am trying to stop it in sugar. And I am trying to, by writing this book, I'm trying to kind of embed intellectual investing into myself. And so this is why, to me, I get up every morning at, I don't know, four or five o'clock and write for two hours. And uh, this is my kind of evolution into, you know, from a hopefully intelligent investor to into intellectual investor. And it's, you know, it would take a long time and it's probably a journey that never ends. So,
0: no, that's, that's interesting. I I, I like the way you're approaching that too, is it's more about forming your own ideas and how you're going to in essence, you know, change yourself and educate yourself just like you would if you were trying to change your diet or, you know, change an exercise routine or something like that. I think that's really fascinating.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. So I guess kind of continuing down that path. And so I know you talk about margin of safety as one of your commandments. So Mm -hmm. what, what is that to you? And does it differ by a company? Does it differ by assets? I mean, how does that, uh, when you look at a margin of safety, what does that mean to you?
1: Um, so our margin of safety basically is a function of company's quality. The higher the, you know, the higher the quality of the company, the less margin of safety I need, right? Because margin of safety mm-hmm. is there to, you know, basically to give you two things. It's, a, it's, protect you. It's, a, it's protect you from the future looking different than you think it would originally. And also mm-hmm. it's there to be the source of the return. So, uh, um, it's a kind of uh, like a to some degree margin of safety is an admission to your humility that you know you, you know you, you try to be humble saying I don't have a person you know perfect crystal ball so uh, but I my crystal ball needs to be not as clear when I own high quality companies than uh, when I own uh, lower quality companies so that's one factor another factor is if I own so assuming it's a high quality company. So assuming, you know, so, you know, so the, we got the high quality, you know, quality figured out. The second factor would be growth. If I want a company that, uh, where I can reasonably say it has a higher growth, the higher the growth of the company, the less margin of safety I need because the growth, you know, growth, you know, there will be value in growth, not just the margin of safety. Um, so at our firm, a few years ago, and by the way, if you're, if you're reading my little book of Sideways Markets and I have to write this book again, I would make a modification because I evolved since I wrote the book. Um, we, you know, So we made a change at, our, at my firm, is that quality became absolute for us. In other words, in the past, I would say, okay, this may be a lower-quality company, and therefore I'm going to need a much greater margin of safety. Okay? Today, when I see a low-quality company, we just walk away. So quality became a filter for us. So below, you know, so we look at a company, if it's quality falls below a certain level, we just stop. We, you know, nothing else matters. Doesn't I don't, I don't even care how much, you know, company, what valuation is. We just walk away. And I think the reason for that, because I think the economic environment that we're going to encounter in the future is going to be a lot more... Um, uh, I'm looking for a kind of very drastic word, but a lot a lot less forgiving to lower quality companies. How, how about that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, uh, w- and this is, this would take me too much time to explain it on the podcast, but we basically embed qual- uh, growth in our analysis. Uh, when we analyze the companies, and I think I t- actually I did actually, and again, I'm shamelessly going to promote my, podcast okay but i i do spend actually in, in in this in the in the in the in the six commandments write up um uh, but i do go through that there and just would be so much easier if somebody read that in, uh, in a, yeah uh but so just go to investor.fm and listen to the podcast <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can also you can also download it i'll add on to your shameless plug you can also download it on any of your favorite uh podcasting apps uh it's the Intelli- uh, intellectual investor podcast, and you can download it and, and get all the latest updates on that as well, so that works out slick that's right thank you <laughs> all right so you're a you're so uh when we when we wrap it up, we'll talk about your other your other love besides your investing in your family uh music uh so I know you're a huge music fan, and I love that aspect of your of your writing and I love that you share that with people and it's it's a it's a great way to introduce people to. You know, not the you know the business side of you. So, I I wanted to ask you a question a little bit, and uh, we t- talked about that a little bit. So, I'll let you kind of take off on that. So, what are your thoughts of Chopin versus Liszt? <laughs>
1: okay. Well, so uh, so I uh, so what happens basically when I um, I love classical music, and it's one of my passions. And so when I uh, when people subscribe to my articles, they receive an investment article, and at the bottom, I usually share a classical music piece and and mention something about the composer. And by the way if you go to and i'm shamelessly going to plug it even though there's nothing to yeah, i'm not selling anything it's just if you go to my, fav, my favorite classical.com literally every single music reference i ever put in my email is there so um and uh, what you're not going to talk about is actually is written in a very long article um uh on my favorite classical.com but anyway so the what fascinated me is the kind of the end of the uh 19 uh, uh like in the 1700s early 1800s in Austria in Austria uh, what happened in Austria uh basically um so the uh beethoven who was german composer spent you know last 30 or 40 years of his life living in vienna which was the kind of the neck of classical you know romantic classical music at the time yeah. and um uh he like there was no greater at the time, composer than Beethoven, he was like if you take the uh, and I can't my my uh, modern classical references would you know very fake, but if I if you take Beyonce and uh, Michael Jackson and everybody combined, Beethoven Beethoven was greater than that at the time. So anyway, so Beethoven was basically the Tsar of classical music at, you know at the time, and um and so right a few blocks from him lived this composer uh, Franz Schubert. And Franz Schubert, the story of Franz Schubert fascinates me because Franz Schubert always looked, you know, never looked at himself as a great composer. And the only reason for that, because Beethoven was so close to him because Beethoven, everybody loved Beethoven and Franz Schubert uh, was, you know, all, always semi depressed and he absolutely, but he absolutely loved class, uh, writing classical music. And I think he, he died when he was 31 and uh he wrote like 5 or 6000 classical music pieces you know during his very short lifetime um and he was depressed he was also uh got syphilis in his uh, early 20s which at the time was an incredibly de- you know, debilitating disease so this is a person who loves m- writing music but at the same time is indifferent to instruments he just you know just loves music you know writing music but doesn't really care about piano or violin. He just writes music for them and and does not publish much music because, again, there is Beethoven next door who is incredible. So it's the, the interesting part is this. Today, when we talk about Schubert's symphony and Beethoven's symphonies, we don't compare them. We both we think that they're terrific. You know, Schubert's symphonies or Beethoven's symphonies, they're terrific. Schubert did not publish most of his symphonies because he did not think they were good enough. So I thought there was a, there was an incredible lesson there, buried there. Um, so, but that's 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 one story. Then there is another story. Uh, about ten uh there is also uh, there is also another composer, Franz Liszt, who was uh, was actually Hungarian. And uh, Franz Liszt, you know, even though today we think of him as a composer, at the time you know, during his life he was actually famous for being a, an incredible pianist. He basically transformed piano to the modern instrument we know today, and the reason it's important because he lived uh in a you know he became famous already after you know Beethoven's death, et cetera, and he was if you take Michael Jackson and Frank Sinatra, he was more popular than those two at the time. He would uh travel around Europe and give two or three performances a day, you know, and because he played so much in practice so much he became absolutely incredible and he turned um, his performances became shows people you know so the, he he was the first performer who actually had fans who would you know who would basically women would basically throw themselves at him you know this kind of stuff and again, we're talking about you know we're talking about uh, we're talking about classical music here this is you know and uh, i apologize my phone was ringing so That's i don't quite know going right. to uh but anyway, so women literally throw themselves at the Franz Liszt, And uh the reason it's important because he become for him but Franz List piano, his passion is not just music, but it's piano. And he basically pushes piano to the limits that it's never been pushed at before. And uh so so you have this kind of showman composer slash performer. On the other extreme. So on that one extreme, you have a kind of very uh, delicate and very introverted and semi-depressed, uh, Franz Schubert. And then you have Franz Liszt. And then in the middle, you have this, uh, uh, you have, uh, you have, uh, Frederick Chopin, who is a, who is just, a, just about the same age as Franz Liszt and uh, lives in, uh, uh, you know, lives Poland and moves to France. Where Franz Liszt is incredibly, incredibly popular. On the one side, if you listen to Chopin's music, it's extremely melodic and extremely, um, melancholic, like Schubert's music. But, but at the same time, he is right next to Franz Liszt, who is this great, showy, performer. And so they, now, if you, li- if you listen to the other part of Chopin's music, it's extremely technical and extremely dynamic. And that's kind of the, so when I listen to Chopin's music, I, I hear both, uh, I hear both, uh, Schubert and Liszt. And so this is kind of, this is, uh, uh, to me, it really fascinates me how you have, composers uh really just impacting like uh how one group, group of composers impacts the other and uh, that's really fascinates me about classical music
0: yeah me too and I, I love the i love the stories of that and how and how they were such different personalities and how they, like you said, Chopin absorbed and, you know, looked at his influences and kind of absorbed both of them into his, his own music. And I, I know when I was in school that there was, you know, I, I was a classical guitar player and. And the other, other musicians, a lot of the people that play piano, I was the world's worst pianist, by the way. Uh, they, uh, when they would, uh, talk about the different, uh, composers that they liked and, you know, there was the camp of the list camp with, you know, the huge technical, you know, virtuosity and then the Chopin people that he had much more melodicism in his music. And I mean, they're both fantastic, but, you know, it's kind of comparing Jimi Hendrix to Steve Ray Vaughan. It's like, you know, (laughs) same, same slice of the same apple, but, uh, you know, it's it. It was always fascinating to listen to those. So I, I loved hearing your conversation about the stories and kind of how they evolved from all that. I know that's a a big passion of yours. I wanted to share that with our listeners.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. I, I, you know, I, to me. So when I write, I always listen to classical music, and what it does. And actually, it's, I'll I'll, conc- I'll conclude this with a little story. So this is and uh, so when my son was born, so this is two thousand one. And this is the internet is in its infancy. We read about the Mozart effect. And the Mozart effect basically says if your son, if your child is exposed to classical music or to Mozart music, even better, then there's a chance that your, you know, your child will become a genius. So being a parent who wanted, you know, wanted all the best for his you know, child or future child, I actually asked my wife, my wife was literally wearing a belt. that had a speaker when she was pregnant, but she was pregnant that had a speakers built into it. And, and, and this was before iPads, right? So she, and if she was carrying a little CD player attached to it. So, so, but, but here's the interesting part. So I, and you know, I, I, and I, again, this is early into internet. So therefore I couldn't really read the original study. So actually, so my and also when my son was growing up, we would listened to lots of Mozart. Um, so the here's the, the here's the punchline of the study they, when they did, when they actually did the study. The uh the uh the creator of the study loved Mozart and that's why they used Mozart to uh uh to conduct the study. <laughs> but what they found is actually they could have been living listening to A C D C or Kiss for that matter. So they, they it's really did not matter what music you listen to. What they found is this you have a left brain and right brain. And when you listen to music, the music basically uh forces left and right brain to work together. So it's basically, you know, and so when you, while you listen to music, you are becoming, you know, it actually, it does induce creativity mm-hmm. while you listen to music. But the, uh, the, but the, uh, in reality, it kind of wears out very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, uh, so listening to, uh, so listening to music, uh, while I write is actually hopefully helps my creativity. Plus I enjoy it, but I also very, you know, but I could be listening to it, you know, it doesn't have to be Chopin or List. You know, it if if right. if if ACDC or KISS or whatever that you know, my references run out very quickly. Uh uh <laughs> if that helps your creativity, just be it. So it doesn't really matter what you listen.
0: Now that's 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 a great story. That's very interesting. Truth be told, I kind of did the same thing with my daughter, but I didn't do <laughs> Mozart. I did uh I did Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix, but hey, you know <laughs> each <Yeah>. your own. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> So time will tell whether she turns out to be a guitar player or not. We'll see. (laughs) All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation with Vitaly for tonight. And I have to say that that was absolutely fantastic. That was so much fun. And he is so brilliant, and he has such a great way of explaining all of his ideas and his thoughts, and for the two or three of you out there that do not already subscribe to his many outlets for explaining his thoughts and ideas about value investing, I urge you to look them up, invest in in them, download them, it's all free resources, so this is free, free money for you, and he has a wealth of knowledge that he can share with you, and it's not just about investing, it's also about life, and he's a brilliant man, he's very well thought, and I really, really enjoy his stuff. I can't, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how much I really enjoy his writing. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys who have a great, great week. Invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to y'all next week.
2: We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven steps to understanding the stock market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples.